Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. I think it's important to always take a moment to just say thank you to you for listening, for sharing, for all the things, and for caring about your relationships and your life. And I think it's imperative that we just take a moment and just wherever you're at, unless you're driving, don't do this. If you're driving, don't. But if you aren't, to just close your eyes and just put your hand on your heart and just breathe in to your presence, to yourself. Just say, I matter. How I feel matters. What I bring to the world matters. What I need matters. You know, just that experience of recognition of yourself. Get into that habit, you know, of just taking a break during the day, just for a second and putting your hand on your heart and taking a deep breath and just being with yourself. I think we all are exploring the question, both consciously and unconsciously, like what does it mean to have a good life? What does it mean to have a fulfilling life? Especially as we sort of face what's going on in the world, um, it's very in our face that life is fleeting. I couldn't be more excited about today's episode in order to begin to answer some of those questions or continue to answer them. The guest I have today is, I mean, a world-renowned speaker. He's a dad, a husband, a podcast producer. His podcast is incredible, The Good Life Project. He's an author of a new book called Sparked, Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes You Come Alive. But work, not just in the context of like what you get paid to do. And so this question of like, how do I find meaning? How do I do things that matter? What does it mean to have a good life? That's what Jonathan Fields has spent his life exploring and answering and continuing to dive deeper into. He is a badass. Uh, In this interview, I cannot wait to share with you because it it was profound and it had a really deep and meaningful impact on me, uh, especially given just sort of where I'm at right now too with what I want to do in the world and how I'm doing it. And I'll fill you more in on that in a solo episode. So with that said, you know, before we get diving in to today's episode, please, wherever you listen to this, one way you can support the podcast is by giving it a five-star review and a written review and sharing the episodes that contribute to your life that maybe help you see your relationships and yourself in a different way. And and by sharing it, you'll allow someone else that opportunity to feel a similar feeling that hopefully inspires some change and some transformation. I wanted to take a second to share with you a little sort of hack that I've come up with. So I have really dialed back caffeine. I don't drink much caffeine. And the reason I decided to do that is because I don't like anything that I have to depend on. Like if I need caffeine to wake up, then I got to quit caffeine because to me that was I'm in service to it rather it being in service to me. Like I'm not choosing my relationship with it. I'm dependent on my relationship with it. And so one way that I've figured out how to get that energy, that sort of afternoon crash that we sort of all can experience is that I use Organifi red juice. And my friend went the other day was saying like, you give a lot of love to the green juice because let's be honest, green juice on the go, amazing. And she was like, red juice is where it's at. And it really is true. In the afternoons, I'll mix in a red juice with sparkling water or regular water, and it enhances your energy. It's antioxidant rich. And you know, when you compare it, it only has one gram of sugar and it has 11 superfoods and only 30 calories in a package. So make sure you go check it out. As you know, I love this brand, Organifi. If you want to save 20% on everything from Organifi, go to Organifi, O-R-G-A. N-I-F-I dot com slash create the love and you get 20% off everything. Also check out their new pumpkin spice flavor because it's ridiculous. And so without further ado, here is Jonathan Fields. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose podcast. Jonathan Fields, so excited to have you here. Uh, I am so excited to be hanging out with you. Man, you know, we've been trying to make this connection for a while. So to finally get, you know, like, 
from the birthplace of meeting. I met you, I remember, at a mutual friend of ours house when I was in New York doing positive psychology. And I always had this sort of like tag on your shoulder, like, I'm going to get I'm going to get that guy on some sort of creation because I've always really loved the work that you that you do in the world. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, I know it's been, this has been a while in, in the making. So I'm glad we could, it's funny that when we finally figured out we're, we're like thousands of miles apart, but somehow it's working. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and you know, the concept of, uh, on this podcast, we talk a lot about relationship, relational things. We talk about it in the context of romantic relationships, but really in relationships of all kinds. And I'm so uh, fascinated by sort of the correlations and uh, sort of the exponential ways in which we do it the same way, no matter what the relationship is. And also like what we direct our hearts towards, you know, and I'm, I, I was really excited to get the chance to participate in some of your new work by taking the quiz to figure out what my my spark profile was. Um, and so maybe you can give some people some context to what I'm even talking about. And, and then we can sort of get into it. I'd love to ask you a lot of questions. Yeah. So I spent pretty much my entire adult life exploring the question of what it means to live a good life. And Really, over the last decade, it's actually become a central part of my profession also um, through writing, speaking, researching, producing media and all this other stuff. And and a number of years back, sort of like developed a model where I said, you know, like there, there, if you look at life, there are really three buckets the way I see it. There's vitality, which is all about optimizing your mind and body. There's connection, which is about, you know, the depth and quality of relationships. And there's contribution, which is all about work and meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I started really thinking a lot about like, how do we fit, fill those three buckets? Because if any one of them runs dry or even gets too low, then everything starts to get like, you know, there's a lot of sand in the machine. Uh, we start to feel a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And um, over the last five years or so, I've gotten really fascinated with that contribution bucket, which most of us just equate with work. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily mean the thing that you get paid to do, although it's nice when that thing can be your central devotion and the thing that also earns you a living. Um, and I start to really wonder, you know, um, can we invest ourselves in a way that gives us the feeling of being alive? Um, and first I had to kind of figure out like, what do I mean by that feeling? And to me, it's, it's the Venn diagram, um, where the center is, is like the sweet spot between five different things. One is meaning. One is access to flow states. One is excitement and energy. One is expressed potential. Um, and the last one is purpose. And when we can exert ourselves, when we can work, um, in a way that allows us to tap into all five of those feelings, to me, that's kind of a magical state, you know, and that is a state that I aspire to. And I began to wonder, whether there was some identifiable set of impulses or imprints that we all have um, that I could map and then build tools around, if in fact they existed, if, if I found them at all, um, that would help people identify them. Because it would, first and foremost, it would help me, you know, understand who I am, what I do. Um, and it might help people understand in a much more intentional way what to say yes to or no to when they choose um, how to bring themselves to the world of work. And you know, through the years actually identified these impulses. Um, There are 10 of them. And then realized that wrapped around them, there are also these quirky sets of behaviors and tendencies and preferences that form archetypes. And I started calling them sparkotypes just because it's honestly a really fun way to say the archetype for work. I that's totally bullshit. agree. It adds a little um, joie yeah, de vivre you know, to it's the It's a little action. fun, you know, yeah, and, and it kind of stuck. And then we developed an assessment in 2018 to help both deepen into the research because the original thing was just an idea and a question. It was a curiosity. Then I came up with the original set of impulses and then started to work with a lot of people around them and was getting tremendous feedback. But I want a lot more data at scale. I want to really understand this better and also understand how real they are or or not real. You know, I was open to either one. So we spent an entire year developing an assessment to try and both help deepen into the work in a much more... um granular way and quantitative way, and also create a tool that we could just make publicly available, similar to a lot of tools that are out there now. You know, like I remember the first time I took the VIA uh, strengths assessment, which was just this public assessment that um, Marty Seligman and Chris Peterson had put up, you know, on the UPenn website and anybody could tap into it. And we released that. And to date, we're closing out on 600,000 people who've completed this assessment. That's incredible. Well over 30 million data points. 
And, and that then turns around and generates a mountain of now stories and use cases and applications. And what's interesting, especially I think in the context of this conversation, is that knowing these things about yourself can be tremendously useful in understanding how to bring yourself to the world of work. But the feedback that we've gotten, which I actually didn't see coming, extends so far beyond choosing what to say yes or no to to work. Because people are like, I did this, and then I had every person in my family do it. And because we wanted to, it was this phenomenal conversation starter because when I did it, it showed me something about myself. I felt seen in a way that gave language to something that I've probably known for a long time, but I couldn't really describe it quite so accurately. And then as soon as I found that out, I wanted to use that language to share it with people so that they could see me more clearly too. And then I wanted to know about them, you know, so this works on the level of partners and colleagues and business people on teams and leaders. But also we're hearing all these stories of, you know, intimate partners, friends, family, just because the relational side of it is people want to share um, when they find something that helps them give access and language to a deeper truth about themselves. And they want other people to know that what that truth is, and they want to know it about those other people. You know, we found that the tool has been really powerful in that domain also, which honestly, I really, that's something that I didn't look for and I didn't see coming. So weren't thinking it's about been cool to see how it, yeah. yeah, how it really has unfolded in a lot of different domains now over what's now a period of years. Yeah. It's it, taking it uh, with my partner close to me where I was like, am I more this or this, you know? And uh, when I got the results, there was this sort of resounding, like, oh, nailed it, you know? And what was also really, well, that was an intimate experience was having the conversation with her as I did it. Like, cause sometimes I think she sees me a lot of, little better than I optimistically mm -hmm. see myself. And the other side of it is, um, you know, it, I, I think you're, you're right. I mean, you created it, so you're obviously right. But I think you're, you nailed it as well with this, like, I felt witnessed in a way. I felt like seen, um, and maybe felt validated that the like internal audit I've done of myself and I hope that the way I, uh, that I'm in integrity with my sort of gifts or what I am passionate about. But I also in the anti-spark type, which of course we can get into, I was like, that is a stuff that feels heavy for me, which you stayed in the profile. Like these don't feel, you, you might get good at them because you have to, but it, they actually feel like they sort of pull energy away from me. Um, so maybe that can uh, spark uh, a little further conversation, pun intended. Yeah. And, and I'm happy to sort of deconstruct, you know, like the different parts of a profile that we share, but, but what you just shared also has been the two, the two most common things that we hear once people complete the assessment. Um, and now we're hearing it on a whole different level that, you know, there's a book out in the world. So now there's so much more depth available. Mm -hmm is people feel like what I just shared, I feel seen. And then the word that you just used, which is validated, which to me is a really interesting and also a little bit of a fraught word. Because on the one hand, it's amazing to feel validated, but I'm also a big believer in that, like no one person validates another person. But when I think about what we've done, we've built a tool that effectively becomes a mirror that looks beyond the facade and reflects back to you a deeper truth. Mm -hmm. And that experience can be validating. And I found comfort in not sort of like framing yeah. it that way. So, yeah, like it, it feels liberating to be witnessed beyond, as you, you know, you said, sort of like the veil that we maybe present ourselves with that someone's like, oh, I am actually that. And that is what brings light to me. And it was interesting, these like small differentiators in the way the words, the questions were asked. And I was like, uh, that actually feels heavier. You know, I want to say I'm better at that, but I'm not. So let's just, you know, I know I love that the assessment itself was very clear. Like, don't, don't answer as you'd like to appear, answer as the truth. And yeah, that was a good yeah, reminder. We, we've actually, and we put that language on, we didn't initially have that on the assessment when it came out of beta. And then once it actually became public, and we realized that, you know, like, you know, like so many more people were coming through. We we're like, oh, you know what? Um, somebody who actually wants to game this to get an answer that they want to get, because it'll make them feel good about like standing in a certain identity. Mm -hmm. They may actually look at this and then, um, start to try and deconstruct the prompts and then answer in a way which makes them feel good, or maybe even take it three or four times so they can keep figuring it out and 
and wiggling into sort of like the thing that they want to yeah. hear. So we we put that language on the front to say like, look, you can do that, but it's a massive disservice to you. It's, it becomes a useless result if you right. do that. Like, just take your time, be honest. This is not for you. This is for you and you only, and you may want to share it at the end, but when you do it, just do it for you. Assume nobody's ever going to see it and be honest, like answer the way that you actually feel, not the way that you think you, you know, like should feel or the way that you wish you feel because that just totally skews the results if you do that. And it's, you know, and then you're doing a disservice to yourself at the end of the day. I'm curious about two things. One, what uh, differentiates it from like a VS Strengths Finder or a VS Strengths Test or a Strengths Finder or these, you know, I like that it gives you these archetypes that have sort of a positive, like it's a cool framework as opposed to your like blue green or one to nine or whatever it might be. And the other question is, have you noticed or has there been a lot of feedback in the data points like that the work they're doing is not the work that they're sparked by and it creates this dissonance that ideally creates, you know, a transformation or a change? Yeah, no, those are two great questions. I'll take them one at a time. Um, so how is this different than a number of the other major indexes or archetyping systems or personality tests that are out there? And and there are a lot of there are a lot of really useful ones. I'm a huge fan. I don't know I, you're, you're this way too. You know, it's like the more I can learn about myself, the better. So I'll, 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 you know, take 10 access points into my soul to just try and sort of like, and then I'll, <laughs> I'll create the montage and see what feels true of all of them. So I think there's tremendous value, you know, whether it's Myers-Briggs or DISC or Via Strengths or StrengthsFinder, all the different things. I think there's a lot, they each give us different data points, Enneagram, which has become so huge these days too, which I think is mm-hmm. fascinating. What distinguishes the Sparkotype and the Sparkotype assessment is that most of the other assessments and tools are either broad-based personality typing things where they focus on all different aspects of personality, how they move through the world. They're focused more on relational styles, um, which is, which, and these are all important things. And then you have things that are more specific, um, like via strengths, which is really fundamentally um, character traits. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it goes straight to character or strengths finder which, you know, is a different look at strengths, which is really about skills and talents. But what I didn't see in the marketplace when we started working on this was something that looked deeper. So it wasn't about skill or talent. It wasn't about some fundamental character trait. It was a very, very focused exploration of work. So my fundamental question was, can we identify an impulse or set of impulses deep down beneath jobs, titles, skills, talents, all that stuff, where when you exert yourself in a particular way, it gives you that feeling of coming alive. So it's not a broad-based personality thing. It's not, you know, and it's very, very focused on this one aspect of who you are. Interestingly, that was the original intention, you know, and that was a really unique metric in the marketplace. I didn't see anyone who was really going straight to that singular question, which is really the question more broadly, when somebody says, what should I do with my life? Mm-hmm. What they're really asking, because most of us are thinking about work. How am I going to invest effort, you know, in a way that gives me the feeling of meaningfulness and purpose and connection. It's really, it's really speaks to that question. And I wasn't finding really good guidance um, and really good answers in the, all the other available things. I think they're great for different aspects of understanding yourself, but not this one. And that's why I went deep into it. it and interestingly, over years now, as the data set becomes giant and as we have a much more nuanced understanding and I start to see, okay, so each one of these does have this pretty definable set of patterns and tendencies and behaviors and preferences, there are behaviors. So, so you know, now we actually understand that each one of these impulses has fairly common uh, relational styles and mm. tendencies and preferences. So it's sort of expanded back out to that, but fundamentally at the center of it is this one question that none of the other assessments that I've seen really speak to effectively. So if I, if I could have found it, honestly, I would never have built this because it's really hard work to do, to do this. <laughs> um, I, I don't know yeah. if I actually understood what I was signing up for when we greenlit this project initially. Um, well, it's so complex, the, 30 million data points. It's like, what an incredible window into human behavior. It really is. And and then, you know, it's interesting because the um, underneath the hood of the assessment, it's actually a fairly complex algorithm, which, which is probably not apparent on the surface. And in fact, um, not everybody takes the same assessment because the assessment 
starts to kind of like watch how you're answering questions, especially towards the end. And I was wondering that in, if it was suggesting. Yeah. There, there are certain built-in tolerances where if it detects certain patterns, um, it will add additional prompts to the assessment to try and push you to be more discerning in the way that you're answering questions. Mm-hmm. So it can tease out in a more nuanced way. Because it yeah. felt like, I was like, I really wish you would ask me this type of question because I feel like I haven't got that one yet. And then it started to really center on those. As soon as I got one, because of course I gave it like the top mark, I started to get more. That's very cool. Yeah. So, so it's actually much more dynamic than sort of like, you know, like straight edition, like, you know, like we're just going to add up the points and give you your thing. Mm-hmm. So, so that was your first question. Um, what was your second question? <laughs> second one was, have you noticed in sort of the feedback, like where people have answered it and gotten a different answer than their work or yeah. their, even maybe where they thought they got meaning, right? Cause those could be the same or could be different. I'm just, I, I'm curious because I know when I get, when I got the answers, I was like, oh, I got to keep going towards that. Cause it felt like more of a call. Yeah, for sure. Um, we see that in fact, the opening page of my book sparked, um, before you even get into the meat of the book, there's a one page personal note. It's actually just like, you know, a couple paragraphs. And it's, um, it's basically says to people, Hey, listen, you may discover something that really changes your model of how you understand yourself and what makes you come alive, what you don't. And then you may actually, once you discover this, you may immediately look at the work that you're doing and feel like it's horribly aligned with what this is telling you. Please don't go and blow things up. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, may, you may have this really strong impulse nice to blow everything up. Yeah. You know, just start over. This is so horribly aligned. I was like, please do not do that. It may be the appropriate uh, action way down the road after you've done a whole bunch of other things in an intentional and you know, like respectful, methodical way. But um, but you know, if that impulse comes up, which it often does for people. Just breathe into it, learn more, take your time and really reflect because, so the answer is yes, um, it does happen. So it's not, it's not uncommon for somebody to actually, you know, like complete the assessment and be like, oh yeah, this, like this rings really true to me. And then look at the work that they're doing on a daily basis and say, huh, I don't see a whole lot of opportunity or, or, or they'll say like in the things that I'm doing right now on a day-to-day basis, I'm not doing a whole lot of this, like this this thing in me is not finding a way to get let out into the work and into mm-hmm. my world. And then um, they'll get frustrated. You know, they'll, they'll be like, okay, so what do I do now? And that's where the impulse to just blow things up and start over comes from. And, and honestly, I would probably say more people find high levels of misalignment than alignment um, when they look at their work, which is part of the reason behind, That's you know, a generation's old level of discontent and malaise and frustration um, and a sense of utility with work. So are you saying that, just so I understand that, that the majority of sort of the response you get or the insight that people get is actually, rather than I'm validated in my alignment, that my work is, is correlated to my spark type, that I'm actually totally misaligned? Yeah. So I, hmm. I can't speak from a data standpoint because we haven't yeah. actually, we're, we're going to be actually diving into those, that questions and variations of it really soon. But anecdotally, yeah. Um, there are a lot of people who are feeling that way. And actually, if you zoom That's the lens out to the moment we're in right now, you know, where you're looking at all these different surveys that are saying anywhere between 25 and 50% of people, they're not just looking to kind of shift what they're doing, but they're literally just walking away from work very often without something else lined up that tells you something major. And it's the fact, in my mind, a big part of that is the fact that this moment has brought so many people into the existential questions that we've been avoiding very often for decades. And now we're sitting here saying, huh, you know, I never really realized I made a bargain when I started into this thing called work when I was a kid or when I was in my early twenties and that bargain may have been okay for me then, you know, I was willing to sacrifice certain things, but now further into life, we're all in this moment where we're sort of the the ground has been stripped away from us and questioning everything. And I think a lot of people are looking at that bargain they made and they're like, you know what? It got me here and there's a lot of good that it gave me but it's actually not the bargain that I want to bring forward in for the next 10, 20, 30, maybe 40 working years of my life, because the feeling that it's given me is not the feeling that I want to have for the rest of my, my working years. So I think that's a lot of what's happening right now. And we're seeing it at scale, you know, Mm -hmm. that level of questioning and reimagining. But I want to come full circle on the thought because 
you know, I said, don't blow things up out of the gate, even though a lot of people have the impulse to do that, because there is a process of reimagining that I'm a big fan of. And when we actually start to understand often for the first time in our lives, what fills us up and empties us out, especially in this context of work, what to look for and what to potentially try and do more of and less of. And then we turn back to that job and we realize it's, you know, it's not giving us what we need. We can start to ask the questions, well, could it, you know, is there a way, are there opportunities for me to actually do a whole lot more of the few things that really nourish me or do completely new uh, tasks, activities, processes, projects, teams, whatever it may be, where this thing in me actually has a lot more opportunity to take the lead. Like, can I sort of like reimagine what I'm doing? You know, like you have a background in positive psych. There's some of the research that comes out of that world um, that's been phrased as, as job crafting, which is functionally reimagining the work that you're doing in order to allow more of your essential self to come out in it. And what most people find is that once they're equipped with a deeper understanding of what truly does matter to them, they can look at that same work and start to see all sorts of ways to reimagine it, to be able to do a lot more of those things um, that they were never aware of because they never understood what to look for before that. So there's very often a huge process of reimagining and reinventing within the context of the exact same job you know, that they're doing or role that can get them so much closer to the feeling that they want and often all the way there. Or if not, then at least close enough where you feel really like you're 80% there. And then you can do some amazing things as roles and activities and devotions wrapped around that, that really give you everything that you need. And, and I think especially now that's super important because so many people also hold the sacred value of financial security and, you know, they would love to be able to honor that value and at the same time do something that makes them come alive. And sometimes there's friction, there's a tension there. And when you take this approach, rather than just blowing things up, then you give people an opportunity to honor both, to say, okay, so you can hold on to the thing that may be like earning a comfortable living for you and your family and, and letting you feel like you're honoring that value and taking care of things. And at the same time, go through a process of reimagining so that you can do that and also get so much more, you know, the fulfillment um, and that sense of meaningfulness and purpose and flow that you seek. And I, I, I've just seen it happen so many times that, you know, I'm a huge fan of that approach rather than the, what I call the nuclear career option. <laughs> yeah, I, I love what you're saying because it's so relational in that, like, if that was about a relationship and you take some assessment, like, should I leave my partner? You know, we would just fucking blow it all up. And there is a vulnerability to saying like, hey, with your work and with yourself, like I'm willing to express that I actually have this need and this desire and this passion. And how can I create it within this workplace, within this relationship? But speaking more to what you're saying about meaning and and, and finding it at work, creating it at work rather than, I'm going to find, you know, I think of people when they say like, oh, I'll know I found my person when they just get me. And I'm like, well, don't place it on that because we're complex. And the same thing is like when I just get this job that it is, well, the job doesn't also know exactly what you need. That's the beauty of the relational part of it is you get to say, hey, can I take on these tasks or do this project? And you're starting to cultivate. Is that sort of what you're suggesting? Yeah. And, and I love that frame. That's actually super valuable to me. I love that you shared that because it gives me sort of like a different act, a different way of looking at it. But I, I agree. I think they map really well um, with each other. And, and also, so interestingly, I keep using the word work, but what I really fundamentally mean underneath that is anything that requires you to invest effort, you know, that that's work. It's almost more the physics definition of work. You know, it's like, and relationships require you to invest effort. <laughs> Absolutely. You yeah. know, so it's sort of like, and, and what are, you know, and certainly you give to them, but also, you know, we're always wondering, you know, like, what are we getting back um, from them? Because it takes work, you know, to actually, to, to sustain these in a really beautiful way. And, and similar to a job, you know, relationships, the container changes and morphs and the nature of like what you said yes to in the beginning and who you were in the beginning, you know, if, if you allow each other the freedom to evolve and grow as individuals, it's all going to shift and change over time also. So it's about really continually touching in 
with who you are on a base level um, along the way and, and trying to keep, you know, keep chewing up to that as you go and then see what, what that feels like along the way. But I love, so I love that context of um, personal relationships too. Can you speak, because you were talking about like these, you've been studying like what makes a good life, not just within yourself, but sort of collectively for each human and as a collective. And can you just speak to, I guess, on based on your experience and what you've observed, how important actually having that contribution and meaning and being aligned with your sparkotype is? Because when I, I love that you mentioned what's occurring right now, which, you know, this confrontation or this having to turn towards the possibility of mortality and then constantly being faced it, towards it, especially if you watch the news, that there is, we often ha- turn away from it so that we don't have to deal with it. And I'd say that a lot of materialism is actually to treat that, to treat that fear of death, to to get a, a hit. You know, Amazon's a great treatment for not having to deal with life. Um, and I say that as someone who's used it for that. So I'm curious, just based on your experience, like why should we do this? And, and what does it mean for us in terms of a good life? Yeah, man, this is a question that I've been deep into for a, a lot of years now. And so it's interesting, um, you know, for generations when somebody would, you know, like have the typical mid 40 year old freak out, um, you know, it was called the midlife the- crisis, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and but if you really deconstruct what's happening in a midlife crisis, right? Is it a crisis of power? No. Is it a crisis of money? No. Is it a crisis of love? No. Is it a crisis of status? No. It's a crisis of meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, we hit a point in our lives where we're like, we've actually potentially got all of those other things. And yet we wake up every day and we still can't figure out why we should wake up the next day. We can't, we like, we kind of move through life feeling hollow, feeling empty, feeling like we're working really hard. We've checked so many boxes on the accomplishment checklist, like all the stuff that we aspired to when we were 24 years old, you know, like boom, 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 boom. And maybe you have, and maybe you haven't, but I'm, I'm saying, even if you have, so many people still wake up and they're like, mm, I'm not feeling the way I thought I would feel. And now I don't know what to do next. And a big part of the reason is because part of that bargain that we make early in life is that we don't center meaning in that bargain. You know, we center a lot of other stuff and we just assume that meaning will come when we have all these other things. And when either we don't get them and we don't feel a sense of meaningfulness or we do get them and we still don't feel a sense of meaningfulness, then we really become hollow. And it becomes a profound existential crisis, you know? So, so we, we can live without so many different things. One of the things that is brutally hard to live without is some sense of meaningfulness. Um, and this bears out in the research and applied positive psych as well. You know, we can go without certain amounts of money. We can go without a lot of stuff, but to wake up every day and, and say to yourself, I don't feel like I matter in any meaningful way. I don't feel like the thing that I'm spending most of my waking hours doing is meaningful to me or matters in any way to the world. That is a very a brutally hard thing to sustain and to move through. And it drops people into a profound state of crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I look at the other things that are important in life, money and, and status and power and security, all these things, I'm like, those are sort of like the fundamental circumstantial things that make us feel okay on a baseline level day to day. But the deeper things, you know, are always, it's, it's the depth and quality of your relationships. And those, by the way, can be powerful sources of meaning. Meaning doesn't just have to come from work. You know, you can derive tremendous meaning from taking care of somebody that you love deeply or feeling loved by them or, so there are a lot of different ways to get meaning, but to spend the vast majority of your waking hours doing something that doesn't in some some way contribute to that feeling for you, um, it effectively consumes a giant opportunity or a giant you know, potential contributor to a feeling of meaningfulness in your life. And it stops, it, it gobbles up all of that time where you could be doing something else that would give you that feeling of meaningfulness. So- you know, it's interesting. Meaning matters. Work can be a huge source 
of meaning when you understand what it is about like how to work in a way that gives you that feeling of it. And love, you know, this goes back to like Baumeister's research, like, you know, like, and, and Freud, like way back in the day, you know, it's like, you know, like work and love, work and love, um, you know, but fundamentally what's happening underneath that is in part, at least they're both powerful contributors to the experience of a meaning, um, having a sense that you matter and that there's a meaning, um, there's meaning in your life. So that's why I think it's really, really important you know, and again, not that other things don't matter. And especially if you're in a crisis mode in your life, in terms of if you can't cover your bills, if you're really struggling, if you're living hand to mouth, of course, all of the things that allow you to sustain yourself on a baseline level, they're important to you, you know, but once we're kind of past that point, then we look at, you know, we're climbing up Maslow's hierarchy. And then, you know, it's sort of, if you don't start to step into some of these other experiences of the heart and mind, then effectively we feel like, you know, every day is just another day in the machine. And that's what so many people have come to feel, you know, and it's the pandemic in a weird way is, you know, it's, it's Morpheus and, and, and the invitation to choose the red pill or the blue pill for so many people right now, you know, nobody asked for this yet. All of a sudden the matrix has showed itself. And we're being invited to like, to really reexamine the choices that we made and decide um, what we want moving forward. And ironically, I just watched uh, The Matrix 1, 2, and 3 again <laughs> just to get a, I was like, maybe this will help me learn how to dodge all this stuff. You knew it was, you knew it was going to come up in the conversation. <laughs> I was, yeah, man, I, was, I, I hadn't watched it in a while. And then when you watch it again, you catch so many more. Oh, uh, so good. You know, and you're, and you're really captured by being able to observe what's occurring rather being them being consumed by what's occurring, which that's hard because that's that navigation. And I think what you've mentioned too before is like, people are saying, oh, well, the work that I'm doing is actually not meaningful to me. And I was taught to do work that's not meaningful. And so now we're like, I think of Bronnie Ware's work on the five regrets of the dying, you know, that <laughs> one of them is like, I wish I wouldn't work so hard. I you know, I wish I had told people how I felt, you know, I can't remember all five of them, but they're all speaking to that. Yeah. And the number one from my recollection from Bronnie, um, is something like, I wish I had been true to who I was. Yeah. And when people say that, what they're really talking to is generally the, the way they're showing up in their working lives. Yeah. And you know, like, I'm curious what you think the cost is of misalignment. Mm. I know that's a big, <laughs> it, it is right. Um, so, so here's, Maybe here's an easier way to quantify it. Um, yeah. So those five elements that I talked about earlier, meaningfulness, flow, energy and excitement, express potential and purpose. We have some preliminary data that um, we're going to be building on that show that effectively, the more somebody tells us that they're doing the, the work of their sparkotype in their work on a daily basis, the more they tell us things like, I feel it like, like, um, I feel like what I do matters. Like it's deeply meaningful to me. I'm able to lose myself in a state of flow where the world seems to just become absorbed and it's this transcendent state. You know, I'm excited to wake up and do this thing. Even when it's really hard and it takes a lot of hours, I still want to, like, I can't wait to get up and do it. And it energizes me, even if it's really hard work that I feel like I'm accessing all of myself. Like I'm not hiding or stifling. Uh, and I'm performing at my absolute best and have a sense of immediate purpose, like I'm working towards something that matters and more broadly, a sense of purpose in life. So if we know from this early data that people tell us the more I do the work of my sparkotype in my work, the more I feel these things, well, then you could also reverse out the corollary of that, which is the less I do this, this work, the less I am likely to tell you that I feel all of these things. Mm -hmm. So those five states matter to you, which to me, you better believe they matter. And, and you want to have more of them. Like if doing less, you know, it basically never being able to express this impulse or this set of impulses in what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis allows you or has a strong correlation with feeling less of these different things, which are really important just to human flourishing then imagine what the long-term toll of that is, you know? And again, this is preliminary data and it's correlational data. It's not causation because we, it, it's actually brutally hard for this particular type of thing to show causation, but we're working on that. Um, and it'll probably be a multi-year, if not longer project to see if we can actually identify that. But the correlations 
are actually really strong. You know, for any data nerds who are listening, like we're seeing R values and correlation coefficients between 0.5 and 0.8, which are wow. really high. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm, like I said, this is preliminary, but I'm super excited about what I'm seeing. And if it bears out over time, you know, there are big implications um, because it's not just if we do more of this, we feel this way. It's that, you know, it, it, you know, people who are reporting to us, they're doing very little of it, are also reporting that they're feeling very little of these other states that are essential to our ability to live good lives. I'm curious if you're also looking at health outcomes and autoimmune and things like that. Not yet, but I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, I think, you know, me too. there's so many, it's funny, I'm looking at the things that I want to do and, and follow up, you know, like studies and, and surveys. And I'm just like, okay, where do we go next? Because there's so many, you know, even like some of the work, and you know, all this work, and, and maybe, you know, like your listeners may know some of this through your conversations, work on like states like awe, you know, simply having the state of awe literally reduces inflammatory cytokine measurement in your body. Like, you know, being, experiencing awe, reduces inflammation in your body. Um, Amazing. So, so, you know, there's a, there's no, the notion that the mind and the body are two different things, you know, it's, I think we've, we've, we're way past that at this point. It all is one feedback mechanism, you know, it's just seamless. So true. It shows you how just being present to the world, to what is around us, uh, creates this sort of synergistic sort of healing state, the state of, uh, as you said, like reduction of inflammation, you know, cause I think about what you're talking about being out of alignment with whatever our truth is, because, you know, when I get it, did your assessment, uh, currently I, <laughs> I sort of laughed at your, uh, forties reference because I feel like I've sort of continuously been in that in my forties. I confront, I'm 42 now turning 43 soon. And I've really confronted like the idea of mortality. I really went into that. I had a, a breakup, which then that was a mortality. So then that made me face actual mortality. I bought a red convertible sports car. You know, like I really did all the things oh, that you, you have you, to do. You like literally checked every box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. I had to. And then we got back together. That's good. Uh, my friend wrote off the car for me. So that was a good way to get rid of that. Um, but like what I've noticed is when I'm not in alignment, like, I, I, you said something earlier that was essentially like you get to the place and you don't feel the way you thought you were going to feel. And I think that's such, cause I had that feeling when I got engaged young in my life, when I got engaged, I was taught that it was going to be the moment. Like I, all my fear of commitment and all the things would just go away because I bought this ring and did this thing. And I remember thinking, I think I'm actually supposed to be more excited in I continue to be reminded as I have different iterations of who I am and the work I want to do and the conversations I want to have that sometimes the dream you have is not the dream you had. And there's something about following that because I think it's facing the possibility of disappointing those around you and the expectations of those around you. And also the expectations we have of ourselves or our identity or our ego. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that because that's something that I've been sort of navigating also more recently? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. Thanks for sharing that, like your reflection also. Um, I think you're not alone for sure, you know, in, in a lot of the things that you shared. And, and so much of our lives, you know, is is controlled by our desire to meet expectations that have play, been placed into our paths by people very often who really want the best for us. And mm -hmm. they think that they're offering advice and insights and direction that is going to help us be safe and flourish and, you know, like take the the path, you know, that that's going to make us happy. And so uh, I think a lot of, a lot of times, like, you know, we sort of, we rail against other people's expectations and they're telling me what to do and they don't know me. And it's like, well, yes. And, you know, I think it's also important to acknowledge many of these people may really love you. And, and believe in their heart that they're offering something that's going to help you and, and they want the best for you, but it still may not be right for you. Um, right. And so many of us, I feel inclined to live into those expectations sometimes because they actually feel like, oh, this person is older than me. They know better. They genuinely care about me. And, and I also don't want to disappoint them. Um, and so they kind of like keep on keeping on. And the problem is, you know, once you start to wear grooves in that track, then the wheels just start to go down those same grooves on autopilot. Like you take your hands off the wheel and you just keep driving down those grooves every day. 
And it's really, really hard. Like you have to exert energy to grab back onto the wheel and turn it and like ride up the rim of those grooves and get out of them, you know, until now you're in like a flat open space where you can start to create your own groove. So I think expectation conformed to over time and repeated and deepened into creates a set of patterns that create Mm -hmm. these grooves in our lives that become brutally hard for us to escape from. And also there's a certain amount of regularity that also comes along with those. And maybe even if we're not happy, maybe if, if we're empty, you know, things are kind of good enough. And maybe we're, we're really scared about what might happen if we stepped out of what we know, you know, if we stepped into a place of uncertainty, especially in the big questions where the stakes are potentially high, you know, whether it's a relationship question or whether it is a, a livelihood question, you know, these are big things where they can sometimes lead to to big changes, maybe not like dramatic and instantaneously, but even a slow evolutionary process can leave you in a very different place than you started. And I think we're afraid of that, you know? So much of life is his life by the devil you know. And and that and I and I wonder often how much you know, how much of an invisible force that is and so much of our decision-making. I'm curious, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this also, especially because you, you come from, at it from a very different lens than me, but I, I would imagine a lot of similarities. Yeah, you know, I think of that line, I've, I haven't heard the devil you know in a long time, like the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. And I often also, you know, as I just sort of think in that, is there's like, even in that statement, there's something about the unfamiliar that's meant to be bad or evil or... Uh, I think it's dissimilar than the grass is greener on the other side in some ways. Um, Because I've always loved the statement, the grass is greener where you water it. You know, when I consider what you're saying from a relational lens, um, or even just in my own experience, you know, there's a, there's that aspect of like, I think that we all, we all obviously evolved to develop codependency because, uh, which is very different from interdependency. And codependency is like, and I mean, authenticity is always at odds with belonging till it's not, till you belong to a group that celebrates authenticity. And I think initially our family systems and our cultures actually, we tend to call that the black sheep or the, you know, we have different terms for it, the rebel, the fuck up, the whatever it is. And it's so interesting when you first go against the first sort of narrative you've been trained to do that you feel liberated and guilty at the same time. Like it's a very, the juxtaposition of it is interesting. And yet I still find myself in these intersections always where like there's an expanded version of me that's calling and there's still a a part of me that's never been there that is afraid to let go of something that's familiar. And I think it's just so human and necessary. There's something about, again, I think turning towards mortality that these are these small D deaths and you know, I think it's, uh, I was talking to a friend about that the other day and, and they said, just let the death be, let the death be gracious, you know? And I, I think that's true about these things. Yeah. I was, I'm, I'm blanking on who I was just talking to recently. Um, they mentioned at some point, um, there's an app, I guess, available um, that sort of like prompts you to reflect on death like multiple times during the day. I've heard which about is this actually, app too, just for yeah. And, and it's, and, you know, which, which is based, you know, originally on, um, you know, some Eastern um, theological practices in Buddhism, um, at least in part where, you know, Western mindset is so abjectly horrified and terrified by, you know, the, the truth of our impermanence and the fact that, you know, like the only thing that we know for sure is that nobody gets out alive, um, mm-hmm. that we do everything we can, not just to not deal with it, but to, to not even think about it, to pretend it doesn't exist when in fact, you know, if we actually had conversations about it and, and openness about it and acknowledge it, you know, I, I, my sense is that acknowledging this becomes a really profound motivational device mm-hmm. to actually wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I want to make this the best. Like, I want to make the best of this particular moment, this conversation, you know, this day, this, this kiss, this hug, this meal, whatever it is, this, because it reminds us that, you know, we don't have any promises. <laughs> Amen. A lot of the work that I do now, I can, I actually have been recently thinking about like, where's the origin? And I've had a lifelong fascination with human potential um, that goes back to, you know, when I was in my teens, but it turned much more into my profession and it's morphed in a lot of different ways. 
you know, probably back around 9-11, um, when I was just really confronted and being a New Yorker, you know, in mm-hmm. the most intimate and upfront way with the truth of mortality um, and how fragile, you know, like life really is at any given moment. And I've never really let go of, of the reminder, you know, that nobody's made any promises. Um, not in a morbid way, not in like an obsessive way and not in a nihilistic way also, but really in this sense that just like, yeah, you know what? Um, let's, let's be as present, um, and let's do as much as we can. And let's like it to the extent that we can feel the way we want to feel and give the way we want to give and love the way we want to love today. Let's do that. Cause I think it just matters. <laughs> Amen. I mean, what a call to step into what we truly love. And I'm, I want to make sure that we uh, cover the different types of spark types because I'm like, uh, as people are listening, I hope this is sort of answering your, your call, the listener of like, hey, if there's any feeling like there's something more that you might be yearning for more or uh, you thought it would feel different, that's that first feeling that says follow the breadcrumbs and Maybe you could share with us uh, how we can gather some breadcrumbs from Sparked, your book, and in this this practice. Yeah. So, so a, a really easy first step in is um, if anyone wants to you know, take the Sparkotype assessment, it's freely available. Um, you know, accessibility of that tool is important to us. It's just at sparkotype.com, which is the word spark, the letter E, and then type.com. The book takes you way, way, way deeper into your profile in a much more nuanced way. But so, so there are 10, 10 of these sparkotypes and I'll just list them out like in a real shorthand for you. And like I said, you can, you can, you can do a lot of your own exploration um, after this. The first one I call the maven and it, the impulse for the maven is knowledge acquisition. You are absolutely driven by learning. And this shows up either in a narrow and deep way, you lock onto a topic or a fascination and you will literally become encyclopedic until you know everything you know. And then you may very likely tap out and move on to the next fascination or a broad-based curiosity about everyone and everything. And then there's the spectrum across everyone. Mavens often struggle because there's no obvious way to actually make a living by just learning. Generally, nobody pays you to Google your entire like life away, <laughs> no. you know? So, so mavens often learn that um, they unlock the economic value of their domain expertise or their, mm. of their fierce curiosity by either partnering with other people, collaborating, being domain experts on teams where other people are like, okay, so we're going to, you're the expert in this thing and we're going to figure out how to make services and products and, and make it useful for people to exchange value or, they also um, lean on what I call their shadow sparkotype um, to do that, which probably I should introduce the fact that when you discover your profile, you'll learn three things. One, we call your primary sparkotype, which is your strongest impulse for work that makes you come alive. Your shadow, which is not shadow in the Jungian sense of like the dark side, but it lives in the shadow of your primary. So you can think of it as like your, your runner up, your next strongest impulse. But we also see very often there's a more nuanced relationship in that you do the work of your shadow sparkotype in order to do the work of your primary at a higher level. Mm. And then we tell you one other thing, which is your anti-sparkotype. And think of this as the work that's the heaviest lift for you. It takes the most out of you, requires the greatest amount of recovery. It may still well be part of your job or the thing you say yes to, and you may still have to do it, but you understand that it's going to affect you differently than other people. So really a sense of forgiveness and also often a commitment to self-care and recovery when that's the case is super important. So those are the three things that you learn when you, you discover your, your profile. So let's go back into just sort of like knocking out all 10. So we start with the maven. Next up is the maker. That's me. The impulse of the maker is to make ideas manifest. You are driven by the process of creation. And this very often shows up in an observable way super early in life because it's offered and rewarded and super socially acceptable. Not true of all of the different types. So that's me. Um, Behind that, we have the scientist. The fundamental impulse of the scientist is to figure things out. You love burning questions, puzzles, quandaries, 
Like this is the thing that wakes you up in the morning. The deeper, the more complex, the better. You may latch onto one field where the questions are so vast and complex, it consumes you for life. Like if you're a cancer researcher, or you may have one fairly discrete problem or puzzle that you're trying to solve that takes a few days. And then as soon as you have found the answer, you tap out and you move on to the next one. But that is the burning impulse for the scientists. Behind that, we have the essentialist. The essentialist impulse is all about creating order out of chaos. It's around utility and clarity. You love spreadsheets. You love organization, organizational tools, systems. Like if somebody shows you a warehouse full of random stuff and they're like, make this, like make this warehouse sing, organize it in like five different ways so we can, it's clear. It's you're the happiest person in the world. Whereas everybody who is not an essentialist, they tend to dislike the work of the essentialist almost more than anything else that you can imagine. There's a more nuanced understanding that we've learned about essentialists, which is that when you're really doing your work at the highest level, essentialists experience it not just as creating order out of chaos or clarity or utility. They literally will experience it as art, as elegance, which is really powerful to see. I've seen people brought to tears by sort of standing back and seeing, you know, a spreadsheet that they've created that is organizing, you know, millions of data points and creating these like really that. incredible uses. Yeah. So that's the essentialist. We have the performer behind that. Um, the impulse for the performer is to enliven, energize, and animate a moment interaction or experience. Now, very often this is channeled as a kid into the performing arts because it, it's kind of the obvious place mm -hmm. to put that impulse. The unfortunate thing is oftentimes people come to believe early on it's the only viable place to put that impulse, mm. which is completely wrong. So when they hit their late teens, and they or their parents start getting worried about like, uh, is my kid going to ever be able to support themselves? <laughs> they tap out of that pursuit. And at the same time, they basically um, disown the impulse and it ends up being repressed and stifled for life. Whereas the beautiful thing about this impulse, you can bring this to bear in a conference room. You can bring this to bear in a courtroom. You can bring this to bear as a public speaker or a facilitator or L&D professional. You can bring it to bear in a sales or biz dev uh, conversation. You can bring it to bear as a bartender, you know, like behind a bar or you know, like a waiter or so it is an incredibly powerful impulse that can be highly valued in domains that have nothing to do with the performing arts. So that's a performer. Next up, we have the sage. Now the sage is all about awakening insight. It's about the process of illumination. You may spend a lot of time learning like the maven, but you don't learn purely for the love of learning. You learn because you want something to share. And the joy part comes when you turn around and you share it in a way where you see understanding and illumination land in those around you. And that is a really powerful thing. A lot of people will say, well, this is a teacher. And yes, like this impulse can be expressed in the role of a teacher, but it can also be expressed like all of these as a parent, like as a partner, literally in any domain that you can imagine. Um, in that sales conversation, you can be the person who like really teaches the person in the other side of the conversation what's important. And that is incredibly valued. So this shows up in a lot of different domains. Behind the sage, we have the warrior. The impulse for the warrior is fundamentally to bring people together and to lead them um, through a process or, or from where they are to something that is deeply meaningful in a different place. It has a fierce energy to it because when you're bringing people together and then managing social dynamics and then protecting them often from the barriers and the roadblocks and the challenges that come their way, there is a ferocity that generally wraps around it, but it's not a heavy ferocity. It's not a dominance-oriented ferocity. It's a devotional ferocity mm. that's often grounded in love and service and guidance. Um, when it is expressed in a healthy way, mm. it can show up in all of those other unhealthy ways too, just like all of these things can. So that's the warrior. We have three left. We have the advisor. The fundamental impulse of the advisor is to guide through a process of growth. This is a deeply relational impulse. It's about creating a safe container and then developing a relationship of trust with somebody, very often over a, a window of time, where you can walk beside them as they move through some sort of process of change or growth or evolution or pursuit. Unlike a warrior, where very often you're among the group and leading from within, most often advisors actually, um, they're not that person. They're the coach, they're the mentor, they're the advisor, they're the consultant. Um, you know, these are different uh, titles or roles that they often 
allow themselves to, to step into. One really interesting insight about the advisors, many advisors will say once they discover this, oh, of course, I'm the person that people have been coming to for advice my entire life. What we know about advisors is that actually the best advisors, the highest level of advising is when you stop giving advice and mm. instead create that container of safety and trust, become a master of social dynamics and frameworks and prompts that would allow you to create a conversation that elicits awakening and growth through that process rather than telling someone, this is what you should do. Mm. Because that part, actually, all it does is it fosters dependence and annihilates the possibility for self-reliance and confidence. Mm. So it's interesting to see how um, there's sort of like different levels of advising. And the more that, the more effective you become at it, the less you're actually giving any advice. Mm, um, that leaves us, yeah, that leaves us with the final two. Um, the advocate is all about championing ideas, ideals, individuals, communities. You're somebody who feels um, inequity or injustice. Um, and that can be as small as there's an idea that nobody's paying attention to and you think it, it's important and it has value. So you center that and you make sure that the spotlight's being shined on it. Or you could join in some major social action or cause or movement or start a you know, nonprofit or represent, uh, you know, serve literally as a, an attorney or a rep legal representative. This tends to show up really early in life also and is among the hardest impulses to repress because it builds up so much pressure because there tends to be a really strong sense of justice associated with it. Yeah. And repressing that is a brutal experience for the person um, who's feeling like it's being you know, kept in a container. And that leaves us with the final one, which is the nurturer. And the, the impulse for the nurturer is all about elevation. It's lifting people up. So you give care and take care. Very often when others either can't or won't, there's something about a situation where you tend to suspend judgment sometimes, and you will step in and say like, help is needed and I'm here to lift others up. It's also very often tied to somebody who has a deep sense of empathy, which can be a double-edged sword because it helps you be that person. But at the same time, it can also gut you if all you do is outflow and never actually step away and give care and elevate yourself which can feel like a selfish thing for a nurturer because it feels like I'm supposed to be doing this for other people. So those are the mm -hmm. 10 different types. It's a super, super basic overview. There's like a ton more nuance that we could go into. Um, it'd be fun, I think, if we still have time to just spend a few minutes maybe unpacking your profile. I would love that. I mean, as you were walking them through with a little deeper than the assessment provided, I'm already really excited to get my copy of the book because I feel really, mm. I feel really seen. Um, so my primary was the sage. Mm. That, I mean, from the outside looking in, that makes a lot of sense to me, you know, because you're somebody who clearly you study a lot and you learn a lot and you're constantly deconstructing things, but it feels like as soon as you know something worth sharing, you turn around and you want the world to know. <laughs> yeah. And I, it's funny cause you were saying like, you do the learning so you can teach. And that is so much. It's like, I try to understand why I make mistakes or why I do what I do. I'm trying to learn out loud in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it felt really, uh, cause I was sort of battling between that and I can tell there was the other one that kept coming up in my questions was, uh, either the advocate or the performer. Um, mm. they were, so I could see there, but they, they just didn't have the same correlation as this age. My shadow sparkotype is the advocate. So that makes sense. Mm. Yep. Yeah. I mean that, and cause, cause they're, um, you take strong positions and you see a lot of things where you're like, this isn't right, <laughs> you know, and you, and you step into that. And a lot of times th that role ends up gathering information and insight and experience that then feeds into the sage's impulse to then turn around and say, okay, so how can we actually create this, turn this into a learning opportunity? where it's not just about advocating on behalf of something, but it's also about creating change through um, illumination. Hmm. Well, my auntie, I mean, it seems like it's a lot of people's auntie was the essentialist. Yep. That is mine also. <laughs> uh, like enjoys turning chaos into an order. I am chaos. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm the exact same way. Like, so especially as a maker, a lot of makers, um, we're seeing like they have an anti of essentialists and, and there's actually a natural tension there because to like, to be a maker, to create mm. things, to create something from nothing, 
you have to, um, you have to be okay living in the question. Yeah. Um, you have to be okay with the uncertainty you're saying? A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and also very often there's a huge amount of mess that goes along with it. I'm going to try this and this and this and this and this. And there's just a lot of spinning and, and there's a lot of frenetic energy in the name of trying to figure out what is the thing that we're eventually going to narrow down to and then iterate on and really build. But especially in the early days, the essentialist impulse to just create order and chaos is almost antithetical to the process of ideation. So there can be some friction and some tension that, but it's not necessarily a bad friction. If both are expressed in a healthy way, it's actually really good because, you know, the maker is going to be like, ideate, ideate, ideate. And the essentialist is like, well, cool. But at some point this has to become something that we do Mm -hmm. something with. So let's sort of like do the dance of back and forth, you know, and, and, um, and it's, it's that, that combination very often is what actually creates output, um, that blend together. In fact, so I'm a maker, but the producer for the good life project podcast is an essentialist. And that dynamic is what makes everything work. Same in my life, the, the employees I have, the team I have, they're almost all essentialists yeah. because I need them, you know? And I think of yeah. that, uh, that saying liberation through limitation, uh, that I've discovered that sometimes having some order is actually liberating, even though in a way I also feel like, uh, I was so anti it because it felt like I was being put in a box or like my light was being smushed, not realizing that it can actually facilitate more focus. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And like, you know, that the, there's a design ethos, which is that constraint breeds creativity, which is the same thing. It's just a different way of saying the same thing you're talking about. And I'm a, I'm a huge believer in that too. Well, Jonathan, this is unreal. I'm so excited about what you've shared and uh, I'm really excited about you, the listener, what you might take from this and, and it contribute to the good life that you create. Uh, Jonathan, where can people go find more about this? I know you said Sparka type, but please give us give us it all. Yeah. So you, if you want to take the assessment, it's available online for anyone to take for free at sparkatype.com. And even if you forget the E in the middle of that word, you'll still get to the right place because we Perfect. own the misspellings as well. Um, and uh, you can, um, the book is available. It's called Spark. It's literally available at booksellers everywhere around the world, I believe right now. And um, you can find me on socials anywhere at Jonathan Fields and the podcast at Good Life Project on any any of your favorite listening apps. Amazing. We'll make sure we link it all out. I'm so grateful for the work you do, the time you spend. Clearly, you're very passionate about helping us all get to that space of creating a good life and um, creating these tools. And I know it's no small endeavor to create an algorithm <laughs> of data points and very appreciative of the insights that you bring back to us. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks so much for inviting me to have this conversation. It's really been wonderful. So appreciate it. 